Welcome back to a special edition episode of the Strength and Speed Podcast. I'm your host, Strength and Speed owner and Conquer the Gauntlet Pro, Evan Preparis. Joining me, I have the man behind Stokeshed, Bobby Ross. Bobby, welcome. Hey, thanks, man. Good to be here. Cool. So this is a this is gonna be a unique episode. And what we're gonna be doing is we're gonna be talking, essentially adding commentary to my book, Ultra OCR Man from Special Forces Soldier. It's a record-setting professional obstacle course racer. And ideally, you know, you, you listen to a couple chapters in the book, you come back over to the podcast, listen to a couple of, uh, listen to an episode here, and then you kind of go back and forth and it kind of expands on what, what I already talked about in the book. But you know, if, if you haven't bought the book or you don't plan on buying the book, one, I recommend you do or get the audio book. But if you don't plan on doing that, I think you'll, there'll still be a lot of great information on here um, because, you know, Bobby's an entertaining guy and uh, we're going to cover some of the stories we, I talked about in the book, but you know, kind of cover some of the areas that I didn't necessarily go into depth on. You know, I, I was listening to uh, a different audiobook by another endurance athlete and military guy. He did something similar, and I was like, oh, that's an interesting topic so or interesting concept. So we're going to try it, and we'll see how it comes out, and I think, uh, I think it'll be interesting, though. Yeah, Bobby, any, uh, any two cents you want to add there before we start diving into the first chapter? If you haven't read this book and you listen to us talking about it, this is going to be really, really confusing. And it's going to sound like a horrible book <laughs> because we're going to talk about so many different things. Yeah. So don't do that. <laughs> All right. So, so we're going to, we're going to j- jump right in. You know, I started chapter one, uh, starts off just kind of a generic history of ultra distance obstacle course racing. And I started writing it that way because the average person reading the book may not even understand what obstacle course racing is. So I wanted it to be like, all right, here, here's what the sport looks like. And then here's like a touch base and, you know, five mile, typical five mile laps, 25 obstacles, blah, blah, blah. And then give like a brief history of the sport. And I actually, you know, when I go back and I, I listen to it sometimes to kind of like critique it and then adjust things on like the digital version. But this is actually one of my favorite chapters to listen to because it, there's nowhere that we have like a history of the sport written down. And I thought it was really cool that I got to take the chance to like, all right, here's where ultra distance obstacle course racing started and kind of here's how it progressed. Dude. I think what strikes me the most about it is just since it is such a young sport, your, uh, I, well, I, I guess like your definition actually changes even for the beginning of the time that you start describing the history of the sport, uh, especially as it pertains to ultra OCR distances to the end of that section. So it's like, it's, it's so amorphous and, and weird and, and ever changing. I was kind of wondering, like, do you ever think there's going to be some kind of like, okay, OCR is this length, this many obstacles of this type, or is it be this kind of strange, it is what you make of it sort of experience. Yeah, I think it'll always be kind of it is what you make of it, um, kind of like strongman where there's no set events. It's always like toss this keg over this high bar, you know, or carry this absurd weight, you know, down in this medley format. I think that that'll always be the primar- primarily the, the bulk of the sport because the people who are coming in want something unique and they want to experience something different, which is why they're there. And that's what I think is really, makes OCR really interesting. I think in the future, there's a, there's a chance, you know, we might see an Olympic version of the sport where it's standardized, right? It, it's on a track um, yeah. so that you can compare times on opposite sides of the globe and the obstacles are standal- standardized. You know, it's, it's the platinum rig with all ring holds and the, you know, the wall is eight feet, eight feet exactly with no kicker board and 
the pits are, yeah. you know, two feet deep, et cetera. Right. Standardization is not even what the athletes want. It's not what I want. I don't, I don't run an OCR because I want the same experience. I run it because I want to be surprised. I agree. I agree. But in order, if you ever wanted to get into the Olympics, that's what they're going to have to do. And right. one of my, I posted a picture on strength and speed Instagram a couple of weeks ago of actually someone, somebody, I think it was Denmark actually built a track where they had like these divots and these, um, these essentially obstacles like built into the sides and off to the, off into the center of the track, which I think is if they, if you want to make it into an Olympic sport, that's what you have to do. So you can, oh, wow, that's cool. Yeah. It's really cool. I had no idea that someone actually did that yet. So that was kind of cool to see. It's such a, it's still rock and roll. Like it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Like, like, like how much DeSena uh, buys, uh, it's always going <laughs> to feel a little bit rock and roll because it's, it's, it's always going to be to taste, you know, season to taste. Yeah. And everyone's going to be wanting more. If you do the same thing a year after year, uh, even two years in a row, people are going to start talking like, yeah, it's the same rig they had last year. Yeah. And I feel like that's even, it's exaggerated even more in, um, century where everything's instant, right? Like instant gratification, social media, you know, you're watching uh, GoPro videos of the course. So it's, I mean, people have that information and people are posting about it. So, and people right, are traveling to within the season. Yes. Yeah. People, it, we, yeah. When races don't change within the season, some people complain like, Oh, this is just like, this is just like tough motor, whatever, California. It's like, yeah, I know. It's the same brand. It's just a different location. You're not supposed to, you're not supposed to be flying to every race, uh, but a lot of people do that because it's fun. You know, it is fun. And then people start looking, people start looking down their nose at anybody else when, you know, they are like, Oh, well, you know, I felt like I did. Okay. It's like, no, you didn't do. Okay. It was the exact same thing you did last year. Well, it felt good. But yeah, I, I had a really good time writing that chapter, you know, and I thought about trying to write like a history of OCR book. And, you know, like you said, the sport's still really young. So it's, it, it just changes so much from year to year. And I'm not sure, still haven't exactly figured out if I was to do that, how I would craft it. So it's not just like a list of race results, right? Like how you actually craft a story uh, that's interesting and engaging, but also at the same time tells the history of the sport and tells the, the characters and the, the athletes we have running around. So uh, you'd have to go through a lot of pictures, <laughs> a lot of pictures, a lot. I've talked to a lot of people um, and it, yeah. I don't know. I, ideally, it would be like a collaborative project, but uh, typically when I do collaborative projects, I feel like, you know, one person does 99% of the work and then, <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's almost more, sometimes it's almost more effort to do stuff collaboratively versus just me sitting down behind my computer and, and working through things. Right. You're just going to have to negotiate on the front end whose name gets bigger on the cover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Any final thoughts on the kind of the, intro to what ultra OCR is and what OCR is before we move into chapter two. I just want to stop and make a comment on the fact that ultra OCR does exist. Uh, like where are sports now, right? Like we are so bored of climbing or just running or it like, like everything else that like we had to come up with like the literally the most insane possible way to uh, challenge the limits of the human uh, physicality. Like, the, the mental necessary to do, you know, a marathon or even like an ultra distance run is insane. But now you add in literally anything else that you can imagine that would be difficult to that race. Like, wh where do you go from there? I think the OCR, like ultra OCR especially, could be 
uh, where, where it ends. This is, this is sport <laughs> at its craziest, dude. <laughs> Interesting. You know, as an athlete, I find ultra OCR is more enjoyable than ultra running because it, it breaks things up for me. And I, I enjoy, I enjoy that. You know, I'm focused on the next obstacle, yeah. I'm not focused on like, oh, I covered 51 miles, 52 miles, 53. You know, I'm just kind of focused on the obstacles. And I think, you know, anytime there's a sport, there's an ultra distance version of it. Um, how popular right. that becomes, mm, you know, it, it depends. There's, you know, there's cycling has ultra cycling, running has ultra running. Um, essentially, ninja is the shortest form of OCR and then ultra OCR right. is the, the longest form. Um, you know, adventure racing has six hour races and they have seven day races. So there's, there's a, there's a spectrum everywhere. And it, whenever someone creates a sport, there'll be someone that affixes the word ultra in front of it. And then it becomes uh, a bad idea, <laughs> <laughs> but people still come out anyway. And I, honestly, I'm, I'm surprised every year when I go to world's toughest mutter and to see the number of people that come out there, it's, you know, and, and a lot of them, you know, a lot of them call it early, but just to see that many people willing to be like, you know what? I'm going to see how far I can go and uh, see what I'm made of. I think it's, I think it's remarkable because you awesome. don't, you don't see, you don't see ultra running races, at least not many with like a thousand people there. You know, they're, most of them are really small. If you've ever been to an ultra running race they're you know, it's like a hundred people, maybe. Yeah. It's your mom. It's your dad. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, it's, it's the guy you paid to, to pit for you and that's it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Any final thoughts on chapter one? No, man. Let's okay. move on. That's the dry stuff. I want to. Yeah. I want to get to the juicy bits, man. Yeah. So, mo- you know, moving into chapter two, um, it's about essentially my my youth, right? G- going from, you know, birth to just before college. You know, I-, I wanted to conclude a little bit about this just because it gives you an idea of who I was growing up, but I didn't want to go into in depth. You know, I've read uh, Don Mann. He's a SEAL Team Six guy, an adventure race guy. Wrote a book, and he went like super in depth with his childhood. You know, and, it, and I've read some other books like that where I was like, you know, all right, I, you know, I, I don't need to know, you know, your first crush and stuff like that. It, it was just too detailed for, <laughs> for me personally. Um, you know, some yeah. people may enjoy that, but I wanted to give a little bit, but not too much. So, you know, looking back and kind of reading through it, I think I gave just the right amount because obviously I hit publish eventually. <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, because I, I meet people now and, you know, they see who I am and the stuff I do and they're like, Oh, well, you've always been like this. And it's like, well, no, not even close. Right. Like, I mean, I was this, I think I was the slowest kid on my cross country team um, that regularly showed up to practice. I think we had a couple of like one or two that were slower, but they, you know, they'd show up like once a week or something. There are the washouts and then there are the truly pathetic. Right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and I scored points for my cross country team once my entire, you know, the entire uh, three years I did it. And I, you know, I mostly did boy scouts and I mostly did drama and musicals, right? So like not the athletic, the peak of athleticism at either of those. <laughs> well, no, it was great. It's the right amount of, of biography. It's the right amount of background. It's contextual without being self-indulgent. I like it. Very classy. Yeah. And then, you know, I've read other, um, I was reading, was it a Legend of Death Race, uh, Tony Matisse's book, and he gave almost no background. And I didn't, I didn't like that at all. It was like, it was like a, it was literally like a page of his bio. And then it was like, and then I jumped into death race and um, I was like, no, no, I want more, Tony. Like, give me more. Like, tell me a little <laughs> bit more about you. You know, where, you know, where were you born? Care, yeah. So um, I've seen it on both sides of the spectrum. So I was trying to find a balance without, you know, I, I figure people are either buying my book because they want to learn about OCR, ultra OCR or for the military stuff. And 
So I tried to lean heavily into both of those. Oh yeah, it's great. And there's nothing better than the the very first picture of you uh, on chat on page twelve at the beginning of chapter two, which I'm assuming is you throttling Hulk Hogan. Oh, um, yeah, I've got a I've a got seven a year old. Yeah, I've got a chain around my neck um, because that's what wrestlers do, and I've got a wooden like dowel <laughs> that I'm choking my wrestling buddy Hulk Hogan with. And I, as you can see from, as you can see from the, the girth of my arms there, I am clearly ripped. Um, sarcasm because I, you are a magnificent specimen. Especially, Yeah. It it almost looks like my shoulder. It almost looks like my arm gets skinnier between my shoulder and my elbow. (laughs) To give you an idea of like how, how, how muscular I am at seven years old. God, would you please bring back that haircut too? You would be a living legend, man. <laughs> yes, I my hair was just unruly. It was long and curly. You know, so if I it, let my if I let my hair grow out, it gets curly. And my sister used to always like, you know, dunk me in the pool and then like slick my hair forward and call me Elvis and uh, make fun of me. <laughs> so, Dude, it looks like you've got a Kentucky waterfall going in this picture. Like a little bit, yeah, a little. It's bit. fantastic. It's kind of long all around, so I don't I don't, I don't know if it's a true. Um, you know, Mississippi mud flap, but uh, <laughs> I haven't it, heard that one. It looks pretty good. <laughs> it's so good. I really think that that, that like characterizes uh, the next couple of pages fully because I mean, you were just like eviscerating your young self, man. You got to give yourself a little bit of credit. You were just a little dude. Yeah. You know, I, 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 <laughs> I had a great time growing up and I don't, you know, I completely, I, Deep down inside, there's still a lot of that there, right? Like, I'm still a complete nerd. I still love Star Wars. Um, you know, I'm, we nerd out every time I come over, dude. Oh, yeah. Every time you come over, I learn more about you. I'm like, dude, we would have been best friends growing up. Oh, this yeah. This is insane. So, the, what you guys don't see whenever you, you know, when Evan comes into the finish line and there's no skin left on his hands and like all his muscles are rippling and he's got two and a half percent body fat, is the amount of comic books. No, no, nay, not just comic books, graphic novels this man has in his spare bedroom that I just, I always find something new every time I go through and I read, I stay up until like 1 or 2 a.m., even if we have a race the next morning, just reading some of the awesome stuff that you have, dude. Nerdy, nerdy as, as hell. It's amazing. Yeah, it's good stuff. Ba- Batman, uh, Nightfall, and... Um, Fantastic. Superman Doomsday Timeline when Superman died, and... Uh, I, I read saw- V for Vendetta for the first time at your place. Oh, nice, yeah. I, I stayed up all movie- night. The movies actually, I think, is better, which is uh, it's about the only time I'll say that about a book movie adaptation. Hugo Weaving just absolutely owned that character. He made V real, and it was worth every second. I agree with you. It's funny you say that. So we'll we'll get into this a little bit later. But I was obsessed with that movie. I that came out on my first deployment, and uh, rough deployment. Uh, like so, all we were thinking about was taking revenge for uh, one of our soldiers that that died. So like. That movie yeah. like really hit home uh, when it came out. So we'll get into some more of that later. But yeah, yeah foreshadowing. <laughs> yeah, foreshadowing. Yeah. About your being like growing up and like you're like, oh, I, you know, I wasn't a good athlete. You know, like I had a very normal childhood. No, like, like if you have like an exceptional childhood, then you're maybe predisposed to doing incredible things because you don't think like other people. But you actually kind of started out as a, a pretty just like, normal kid and that was the stuff that you went through later on in your formative years that turned you into you know the kind of uh that gave you the mental wherewithal and grit to get through the stuff that you do now and i think that's more interesting yeah interesting 
And I, the other thing I was, I was excited to do was kind of in that opening chapter, I gave a shout out to a couple of my friends that, um, you know, I think I've always been blessed as a lot of my friends, whenever they found something they were good at and they kind of dove into it and they found like a, a fair amount of success in each of their fields. So, you know, we all kind of went our separate ways from high school, but uh, we're st- we still hang out when I go back to New York. I'm still, f- I'm still close to those guys. Uh, my friend, Anthony mentioned before is a, get two Emmys and two nominations for Emmys. I look for his name in the in the credits every time I watch last <laughs> week tonight. I don't know yeah. why. Like I just keep doing it because I'm like, hey, I don't know him, but I know someone who does, and it makes me feel good. <laughs> yeah, and he sometimes he appears in like that. If you watch the show closely, sometimes you'll see him in the show. They use him as like a, you know, a stock photo. Um, oh, yeah, he appears in the show occasionally. So I I was watching a, a episode on the plane on a plane once. And I'm on the plane. I'm like, it's Anthony. And then people are like, <laughs> I was like, yes, sorry, sorry. It's uh, embarrassing. But Best show ever, but we won't get into that. Yeah, that's good stuff. When they blew up 2020, that was fantastic. Uh, I haven't been watching recently, but I need to. Every time I watch an episode, I think I think he's very, very thoughtful and very clever. We saw a live taping, me and my wife. Uh, Anthony got us into the live taping room. Oh, wow, cool. that's great. All right. Any any other final thoughts on kind of like growing up and um, – no, dude, I, I'm good. I'm good because because I'm like everybody else. Like I'm just waiting. I'm waiting for chapter three, man. I'm waiting. I'm waiting to see see where Evan became Ultra OCR man. Yeah, yeah. So I the get first to that first marathon. The first again, those first couple chapters are pretty short, and then uh, so chapter three called uh, College America at War and Redefining Boundaries. So yeah, that, like you were saying, you know, that's you know, I, I went decided to go to college, uh, Johns Hopkins, and. I joined ROTC so I could get into the army and I just fell into a group of people that didn't understand limits, right? Like <laughs> I, I pledged this fraternity as a military fraternity called Pershing rifles. Uh, they put us through a pledge period that was at the time was like the, it was by far the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And it's still one of the hardest things I've done in my life because it, you know, at the time I, I just didn't have a, enough experience to be, good at really hard things so it was just yeah. i mean it just destroyed me and fifty thousand uh, push-ups yeah yeah so we would do we'd basically we'd basically mess up and they'd give us instead of making us drink or anything like that it was it was just physical exercise so they would just pile physical exercise on top of you and give you impossible tests like, like fifty thousand push-ups and you and three to seven other people doing sets of 10 push-ups for literally hours on end on a night. And then you'd, you'd knock out a good chunk of the, you know, you'd, you'd knock out a chunk of it and you'd go home and then you go to the next meeting and you get assigned more push-ups, And it was like a never ending cycle where it was just like, Ooh. it was just like, this is an impossible task. Uh, but you have no, you have no choice, but to keep moving forward. Cause you know, that's how you would get through the, the pledge process. You said something that I, I really loved in there. And it was uh, talking about your disdain for people who quit uh, and it kind of pertained to those push-ups, and uh, I'm just going to read straight out of it. It said, quitting meant one person didn't have to work anymore, while the remaining members would have to work sometimes twice as hard. And so you started, you grew like disdainful of people who quit because they made other people have to shoulder their burden. Yes. Yep. That, I mean, completely accurate. That's where it started, and it, it continues on through the military. Well, again, we'll talk about the military stuff, right? That continues on through ranger school and special forces selection um and then you know that that mentality is instilled with you when you go into combat because you can't have someone quitting when things get hard because 
things get hard all the time. So you have, yeah. you, know, you, you have to be like, all right, well, this is a bad situation. I need to um, continue to try to win regardless of what's happening. So they, that's definitely where it stems from. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's, I was thinking about this the other day because I uh, am a person who it, it depends on the context. Like, right. Like if, you, if you're in an extraordinary circumstance, a lot of people find that they have more in themselves than they thought they did. They find that they have the motivation to either survive or to excel when, when they're, they're in kind of alien or difficult circumstances in ways that they don't in normal day-to-day life. And when I think about you pledging that fraternity, you could have always quit and then gone to another fraternity. Yeah. Right. There was, there was, there was never like a time where you were in any sort of extraordinary circumstances. You were just pledging. Right. And, and yet you were already in that sort of mindset that said, you know what, I have to, I have to finish this. I have to get through this. And that's, that's something that really speaks to me to uh, the, the same stuff that I learned this summer when I did my first marathon, which was, horrendous. I, I, I think I, it took me almost four hours to do it. It was night, a nightmare. I mean, I thought I was going to throw up the entire time. There were several times where I, would ju- I was just laying on the ground and I said, this is so stupid. This is so stupid. And I'm like, like, like huddled in a little ball and like, I just want to quit so bad, <laughs> so bad. And I, and I think about you and your years of this and I just, I don't know, I get really inspired, dude. I'm kind of uh building you up a little bit aren't i your head's too well, big so I'll, I'll i'll deflate my own head a little bit for um because i don't think i actually talked about this in the book so when we pledged we pledged in the fall and we were doing uh this thing called ranger challenge it's like the extremely watered down version of best ranger uh at the same time okay. and it was me and my pledge line and we actually all quit and we came back and pledged no. again in the spring no so I, I don't t- I don't think I talked about in that book because in the book because it oh, seemed oh no way you left se- that out I seemed irre- it seemed like more detail than I needed um, no way. but that's the one time you quit ever <laughs> <laughs> so but when we quit we're like all right like I remember like sitting in the in the basement of the getting ready for the next meeting and being like all right we're gonna quit I was like we're coming back right and everyone's like yes we're coming back and uh, yeah the three got three or four guys. I, uh, I was pledging with at the time. I think three of them, uh, one of them didn't come back, but the rest of us came back and finished. So, Under um, what circumstances? Like what, what made you actually quit that first time? Um, new freshman, you know, fall semester, freshman year, trying to pass classes. Literally think I'm, mm. I'm failing things. Um, doing Ranger Challenge, which was a huge time commitment. And then doing Pershing Rifles on top of that was, it was too much time. Like I, I literally had no time. Um, gotcha. so, so actually in the, the, the following years, we actually started just doing spring pledge period because we did essentially the actors were like, well, it's too much if guys want to do both. And the, uh, a lot of the guys in the fraternity were actually doing Ranger challenge at the time too. So it, was, it became too much for the, it became too much for the, the current members of the fraternity to do both. <laughs> so we actually, from, from my class forward, we actually switched to spring only. So we should do just spring pledge periods. Man, that that gives so much more context to that. That that definitely makes me feel a little bit better about myself. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, I, I do quit things. It's I, if you never quit anything, you'd still be doing all the same stuff you were doing as a little kid, right? You'd still be, you know, playing basketball and taking karate lessons and doing gymnastics or whatever, whatever you did as a kid, uh, right? You know, so uh, I quit stuff all the time. But just you know, when I find something that I'm 
I kind of have my heart set on, you know, it's, um, it's always the why, why'd you quit? Yeah. That's more important. Sometimes you quit to make room for something better. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and at some point at, I will quit OCR at some point, right? At some point I will, I, I, you know, I may not realize it at some point my, there will be a, a last race and, you know, I'll move on to other things or, you know, maybe I'll be dead at that point. Who knows? <laughs> we'll say. <laughs> Foreshadowing. <Yeah>. Foreshadowing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Dark humor. I got a lot of. Yeah. We had to get to that. You, you, you said that you would eventually talk about some of that dark humor, but once again, we're on chapter four, we're on chapter three. That's in chapter four. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the end of kind of college, or again, I'm trying to looking up to some of the older guys going into the military, I started getting more involved in some of the endurance sports and, you know, ran my first marathon with no training, no idea about nutrition. And, uh, I mean, I, I went in completely blind. It was, it was a disaster. And I, Again, when we talk about like the hardest things I've done in my life, pledge period is one of them. My first marathon is definitely one of them. And then some of the stuff I've done in recent years, some of like the OCR America 2 stuff is, is definitely up there. But um, again, it was the lack of experience and lack of, yeah, lack of experience in other similar situations where I, you, you have no well to draw from when you need that extra energy where it's like, oh, I've been through worse times before. It's like, well, I haven't been through worse times. Like this is, yeah. a, this is as bad as it gets. <laughs> like it doesn't get any worse than this. So, right. um, yeah, I, I finished that first marathon and I, I remember buying the picture and being like, oh, I got to buy the picture because I'm not doing this again. This is, this is a terrible <laughs> idea. You know, it was just like, you know, and if you read the book, you'll see, I, I say that so many times. And I think I'm right. every time I say it, I'm like, no, I know what I'm, I know what I'm saying. And I, I'm wrong every time. So that's awesome. You no, know, hundred percent. I actually kind of wonder like, was college where you started to learn how to manage your time really well? Like, do you have like a bunch of kind of a secret sort of methods that you use to uh, make sure you have time for everything? Or is this just sort of like a uh, being decisive, getting things done when they need to get done and then moving forward? Like, yeah, when I did think that it, start? Yeah, I definitely had a little bit of it in college. I think I actually started getting better at it probably actually right when I was getting into obstacle course racing where... I was very fitness focused and I was getting a, taking a master's program at the time. And I was in this like arm, the army, like majors course there. And, you know, I wanted to race on the weekends and I wanted to uh, train during the week. So I actually, I would do homework like a week or two in advance sometimes, something I never did in college. You know, I did the typical college thing and waited till the day before or a couple days before. So hold up a second. I did not realize that you had a master's degree. What do you have? A, what do you have a master's in? Yeah, I got a master's in global international studies from the University of Kansas. I don't think it's very exciting, so I don't particularly talk about it very often. And I don't really use it too much other than it's kind of just kind of required for my job now. Okay, it's just, uh, yeah, just, a, just a little bit of fluff. A little bit of fluff, a couple of... You didn't even get any letters at the end of your name. That sounds like a waste of time. Yeah. So, you know, other than that, um, that's kind of, you know, college and that military fraternity is kind of where I started finding that kind of endurance bug. and. Uh, started sliding down that slippery slope there so yeah you did the uh the army 10 miler in 2002 right so and i remember i ran 10 miles and i was like it was like no one runs 10 miles that's insane and now like i run 10 miles and i don't even tell anyone right it's just like <laughs> it's just it's just background noise you know it's like that's just tuesday that's literally a tuesday yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well that's fantastic because that progression from like 
10 miles to a marathon. And I, I guess I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but you talked about running marathons. I think it was whenever you left where you were uh, stationed in Iraq, when you left the city or when you left the base, you would run a marathon. Yeah, that was like my thing. Uh, yeah, we're, we're just kind of jumping ahead there. But yeah, that's, that was my thing for a while. It was every time we'd leave a city, I'd, I'd run a marathon. So I ran it around the base, um, you know, doing like something like 15 or 20 laps around a base. And then I ran it uh, I ended up running one on a treadmill in August in the non-air conditioned room in Iraq. And that was awful. <laughs> like I was so dehydrated. Um, yeah, that was really, and that was, you know, this is before like the nice iPods and stuff like that. Like I had like the generation one uh, iPod mini, you know, with oh, like, yeah. did you have it? Did it even have like one of those uh, roll wheels yet? Or was it yeah, still? It, it, yeah, it had a roll wheel, but I mean, it was, yeah, I don't even know how many songs it had on it, but it was not a lot. And the, uh, yeah, no, no video. It's just like me staring at a wall and uh, an iPod mini. So it was a rough marathon. Oh, rough man. Marathon. Yeah. Well, we're jumping ahead a little bit because we were, while we're at college, I really want you to go a little more in depth about uh, that night at the bar where you, uh, you discovered the knife. Oh yeah, I think so. Do I, should I just tell this part about the? So, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Should. You should. I, it's a good story. Well, I'm gonna tell this because I I don't think my wife's gonna listen to this part. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so the so me and my friend go to spring break and uh, the week before, and we're we're hitting on some girls and you know basically basically pushed out right and didn't didn't actually uh, go and approach them or something. So like that was kind of like a recent burn where like you know we we essentially we we didn't, we didn't get, get anywhere with it so the next like essentially like two days later we're back in maryland uh um at a bar i, I see this girl there and i was like well i'm not you know i'm not pussing out again so like i saw her <laughs> she, i thought she was beautiful and i went up to her um long story short turns out to be fast forward a little bit turns out to be my wife but uh yeah you know later on in that night we were talking and put my hand on her hip and uh she had a Benchmade knife, which is, if you know anything about knives, it's like a really nice knife. And I think I was carrying like a $25 knife. And her, so hers was like $90. And uh, yeah, I was just like, I felt like, I felt like that was like a sign from God that like, all right, this person, <laughs> this is who you're looking for. <laughs> so kind of, yeah. What was that like those first uh, couple of years? Because I mean, like you talked a little bit about, you know, you, you knew that you were going into a career in the army, that you weren't going to be around a lot. And you're both, you know, very self-possessed people. I know you very well. But I mean, can you talk a little bit more about like, like what your early relationship was like? Like, did you do anything to prepare for the amount of time that you were going to be away from one another? Or was that just something that you just kind of try not to think about while you were together? Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of, you know, we we were kind of dating right at the end of college. Um, so we kind of always knew it was coming. And then at that point it was, uh, it just became normal, right? Like, I mean, if you never get used to being around someone all the time, I think the transition's a little bit easier because you, all you know is that long-term relationship. So that's how really how we started off our relationship. Cause even when we were in college, she was at the college, like, you know, a mile down the road. So it's not far. Right. Uh, yeah. but, but I don't have a car. She doesn't have a car. Um, so it's a bit of a hassle, right? There's no Uber back then. I mean, you could take a taxi or walk, I, you know, but, um, and which I did sometimes, but, <laughs> you know, it's, um, you just got used to not seeing each other necessarily every day, you know, like maybe you'd see each other on the weekends. Maybe she had 
crew practice or I had something going on on the weekends. We'd you'd go a week or two without seeing each other. So, you know, she's pretty introverted. I'm at times pretty introverted. I can turn it on and off uh, if I want to, uh, but I prefer to be by myself a lot of the times. And yeah. the, uh, yeah, yeah, we, that's how we started. So that's what we were used to. So it was pretty easy uh, transition, I guess. Yeah. And that was about the time also, uh, I, I guess when you started doing triathlons as well, right? Yeah. Well, you know, my, my thought process was if I could do like the, you know, the, what I thought was the hardest race at the time, right? Like an Ironman triathlon, then I should be able to pass the military schools that I have coming up. So I, I basically, you know, signed up for a mar- uh, triat or a half iron and started just training. And like, I got in the pool the first time and swam a lap and my heart rate was like, you know, 190 <laughs> i'm like gasping for air and uh <laughs> you know and then i think from from learning to do triathlons i fi- basically figured out like everything is just practice right like i re- i basically find a topic i read a bunch of books on it and then i just practice it until you know it becomes second nature right yeah, like they're saying um don't practice until you can do something right practice until you can't do it wrong yeah um, and I just basically, that's what I did for triathlons. And then I would use that same model to adopt for ruck marching for military school. And then eventually into obstacle course racing. I'm really interested in your, uh, I, I guess the, the triathlete phase, because like there are a lot of like swimming is in itself a skill that is so deep, no pun intended that the, I mean, you could spend years just getting to a good level with that. And it's the same with cycling, but it, it sounds like those were kind of, that was kind of your beginning of like competitive swimming and cycling was just getting to do the Ironman. Like, is that something that, that has followed you that kind of like need to like learn something new and master it very quickly? Have you got any tips for that? You know, I'm not a very good swimmer and I'm not a very good cyclist. Uh, (laughs) So I really just kind of bumbled my way through both of those. Uh, But again, it shows you that even with very little preparation, uh, you just kind of smear a lot of willpower onto the, on event day. And you can get you can get through most things, right? Like, I mean, I was woefully un- underprepared for for my first Ironman, but you know, you just keep moving forward, and you'll you'll eventually make it to the finish line. So I I was concerned about not making the cutoff, a, a little bit, not like very concerned, but it was in the back of my mind. I was like, well, what if I miss a swim cutoff? And you know, I, I'm I you know I, was, I think like ninety plus percent of the field beat me out of the water, and you know, eighty plus percent of the field beat me on the bike, and and then the run, I usually run people down, but yeah, I think people yeah, who it, start off any, anything need to think about the fact that like people like you, like even at the very highest level, didn't start off uh, on the podium. Oh yeah. Not even close. And I mean, even still, if I tried to transition to back to triathlon, I would get crushed. Um, just cause that's not, my, that's not what I'm good at, but, um, and I haven't practiced enough to be honest with you, but yeah, I mean, that's why sometimes I see some of the stuff in obstacle course racing people are like, well, how do I get to do X, Y, and Z. And it's like, well, how long you've been running competitively in like a year. It's like, Oh, you, you need to practice more. Like most things in life just comes down to practice. Right. I'm, I'm a huge believer in the 10,000 hour rule. Uh, if you're familiar with Malcolm Gladwell and 10,000 hours it takes to achieve mastery. And, you know, if you start actually doing the math and how many, you know, if you want to achieve mastery in anything, you know, it's going to take 10 to 20 years of, of doing that activity. And that's with a lot of dedicated, uh, focused effort. So, uh, with obstacle course racing, I just happened, you know, well, 
again, we'll talk about this later, but I happened to be running for a long time and then doing strength training stuff for a long time. And then, so I, I had the muscle to do the obstacles. I just didn't have the neurological connection yet. And then that just requires practicing it a little bit. And then you can make those connections really quickly because the neurological yeah. improvements really quick uh, building of actual muscle and tendon and stuff like that. And improving that stuff is takes a lot longer. So it sounds like all of these are lateral moves too. It sounds like what you're doing is kind of like taking something that you learned in by doing this one thing. And then you kind of were able to sort of slide over into something that was sort of similar and they keep doing that until you sort of landed on something like OCR. that's maybe only a few degrees removed from uh, triathlons, which is only a few degrees removed from the marathon, which was just a few degrees removed from like the 10 miler. Yeah. I mean, that is, that is spot on. I would like to say it was like well thought out and planned in advance. Um, it was not, <laughs> but yeah, that, that, I mean, that's exactly what happened. Uh, yeah. Cause I, I used my previous experience and uh, the stuff I've learned and just kind of shifted over part of it into whatever my new interest was. And a lot of it transferred over really well. Absolutely. Wait, I, I want, I want to like, before we leave uh, college, uh, what was your, what was your relationship with your dad like back then? Because it's like, there was a really interesting exchange where your, your mom and dad set you down when you said you wanted to do a full Ironman, I think it was. And they were like, do you think you can finish that? Uh, my, my relationship with my dad has always been close. Um, and I think since then, I, th- I think it's even gotten even closer. Um, you know, he was a Boy Scout leader when I was a Boy Scout. So he was on most of the camping trips I was on. Um, he was a soccer coach for a little while on one of the teams I was on, uh, not all the teams. And then he, you know, showed up to my school plays and musicals and stuff like that. And was, you know, was never discouraging. was never like, Oh, well, why do you want to do musicals instead of sports or something? You know, he was just like, Oh, it was great. It's great seeing you in the musical. And, um, <laughs> you know, at no point was I ever like, did I ever feel like what I was doing was wrong or embarrassed? Like he always seemed to be encouraging and, um, he tried to make me play basketball for a little while. And, you know, I, I don't, I didn't like that because I'm five, six and I uh, wasn't very, <laughs> wasn't very good, but you know, the, uh, I, we've always had a good relationship and you know, when I, now that I'm a little bit older, I can see, I can see so much of, we're like the same person. The amount of times when we do stuff that's so similar, uh, is actually kind of eerie to be honest with you. <laughs> like I, I, I don't know if we, we covered this when we were on the pod, podcast thing about OCR America, but we were in a, um, you know, we stopped for a snack at one of the gas stations and there's right, there's, you know, a, a thousand snacks in the gas station. And I go from across the, I'm like, Hey dad, what did you grab? And he holds up a bag of chocolate covered pretzels and I hold up the exact same bag. And I'm like, <laughs> what? And it's not like, it's not like, Oh, well you, we always eat chocolate covered pretzels. It was just like, it was just completely random. And it was like, Oh, we're like the same person. It was just, yeah. Funny. Man, talking about OCR America, like, like jumping out of the book for a second, you're talking about you and your dad grabbing the same single bag of chocolate-covered pretzels, and you're the one doing the marathons every day. But Jacob and I were getting like everything that we could find. Like, I mean, we would have so many snacks. I would just like grab ev- like all the sweet and salty stuff I could get. Like, I spent so much money just on on junk food because I was I was like trying to like kind of I guess comfort myself. Uh, in some way, based on just the amount of, of discomfort that we were feeling, uh, which I guess segues us pretty nicely into your uh, your next experience, which you talked about a little bit, which was actually finally going into the army. 
Yeah, so um, well, a side note, I, I'm pretty sure you guys still lost weight despite us eating like human garbage. Disposals. Oh, I lost 10 pounds. Yeah. <laughs> For that week. <laughs> I transitioned, or I, I, you know, I finished college, went right into the military, and while before I even left my first assignment, they're like, oh, well, if you're going to the 101st, which is where I was headed, it's like you're deploying basically as soon as you get there. So actually when I got to my first unit, I didn't even get an apartment. I just – I lived in a hotel for like a week, went home to see my family for a week, and then I got on a plane to Iraq. So it was pretty like you jumped right in. So, you know, you know, normally you build relationships with the people in your unit and there's like this big camaraderie going in. It was like, uh, I'm going to Iraq next week and I've never met anyone in my unit. So that was a little bit, it's a little bit nerve wracking. And especially as an officer, they put you in charge of people, right? So you're like, oh, here's this new guy here. You're in charge of all these other dudes who have been in the army two to 15 years and you're supposed yeah. to like tell them what to do. And you're like, I've literally been here for like an hour. So that's a bit of a, it, it's a rough experience um, coming in. So. Dude, yeah. Like, I mean, you were never in your element for years, basically. Like, I mean, you were just like kind of living in a place where you were always forced to push yourself out of your comfort zone. Yeah. 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 You know, prior to actually showing up to that unit for deployment, that was when I went to ranger school and did the, the extended phase of ranger school. I like to say the, uh, had to, had to redo a couple of phases a couple of times and took a two month course and stretched it out into a six month course. And I'd say, (laughs) you know, I'd say PR was kind of like the first big mental hurdle. And then ranger school was, I'd say really like a, a second big kind of mental hurdle where, I mean, it was just the way it's still, that's like one of the worst experiences of my entire life. It's just, I still have like nightmares about it occasionally. Um, <laughs> just cause it's just a mi- completely miserable place. You're hungry and you're tired and you're grumpy literally all the time. And I, you know, I, I say, you know, you get a patch when you graduate and I'd say, I used to say like, you know, if they were like, you, you in order to keep the patch, you had to go back to the school for a week. I would be like, you can take this stupid piece of cloth, but, um, <laughs> you know, going in, it was, I mean, that was, that's a, that was your whole world, right? Like, so the, the amount of pressure you feel going into that is unlike anything else um, I've experienced ever, right? Even in combat, right? Um, we talk about on the Mark Odette podcast, right? But like, if you mess up in combat, right, and you die, like, that's it. It's not your problem anymore. because You're dead. <laughs> Sounds weird right. to say, right? But in ranger school, when you mess up, you have to go back to your unit and like, be like I failed and uh here's why so there's a lot more stuff you have to deal you personally have to deal with obviously your family is in a much worse situation than the other scenario but yeah well I mean like you talk a lot about that they're they're crazy stories right like I mean even when you talk about your failures it's like this a lot of that stuff is completely out of your control like I can't imagine the frustration but like you don't talk a lot about what it was like mentally like uh, like what was going on internally? Like, especially like you talk about the time that you were, uh, you were marching with, uh, with your unit. And like one of the guys, like, I guess comes up against a rock and he says, I'm just waiting for the guy in front of me to keep going. Like you guys were so sleep deprived. Like, where were you mentally in that? Yeah. That's, that's, uh, some sleep deprived hallucinations of ranger school. That stuff is, you know, for a non-military guy reading it, you're like, these stories are crazy, but like anyone who's been to the school will have, a bunch of similar stories of like that. And it was just very frustrating. You, you're, you're just trying to pass this stupid course, which is very, very subjective. 
and um, you know something something like that could ruin your your grading, and then you're like, dude, yeah. like what? You know, like I'm trying my best here, and you know, some guy is acting super weird for a, a part of your, you know, your one graded patrol, and uh, it's just uh, it can be very frustrating. So, you know, by the end of the day, you always have a little bit of control over the situation. Yeah, I ended up failing the that phase I passed. I, I failed that patrol, but I, I passed the next one. But right. Uh, Did you ever like despair, like mentally, and like so? So like when you reach a place where you're like, I hate everything and you're done like i'm sure you got there but did you get through that by like shutting that part of your brain down or did you just like kind of dig into it and kind of go through and find the other side like i'm just really interested in like kind of like where where you go mentally like like we were talking about a ton in ocr america too like where do you go mentally when everything is wrong but you still have to complete the mission the mission at Ranger School specifically, like when I when I would was, was start restarting on day one, essentially for the third time, I just I had enough. Right, I, there's nothing I wanted to do more in the world than quit. I was like, this is the stupidest fun, effing place. You know, I, I, I hate <laughs> I hate everything. Like, just I was just a completely miserable human being to be around. But at the same time, it just it just wasn't an option, right? Like, I mean, we'd spent I'd spent almost five years of my life thinking about coming to the school. And, you know, physically preparing for it and, you know, just kind of mentally preparing myself. And I was like, you know, when we go there, it's just quitting is just not on the table. It's just not something I'm willing to do. So I just kind of sunk cost. Yeah, it was just like, yeah, this is what this is life now. Like, welcome to your new life. It's perpetual ranger school. (laughs) And there are no do overs here, man. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, I just took it one, one a day at a time and one hour at a time. And, um, just kind of, again, you, you kind of, you can't stop the clock. So you just keep, you keep doing whatever you have to do and try your best and, and see how things shake out. I, I don't know if that answers. You did make it through it. I did. It yeah. totally does. Because like, like it, it shows me a little bit about, um, the way that we talk when, when like we're talking like on, on long races and stuff, you there is a, you don't actually go. So like a lot of people talk about like, you know, finding a place inside mentally where they kind of deal with pain, but I feel like you're not that kind of person. Like you're not like going somewhere else. You're just experiencing it and deciding what to do with it moment by moment. You're just saying, okay, cool. I'm taking the input. Like I've obviously uh, got some, some pain, some discomfort. Uh, and you're, you're taking it and you're processing it and you're choosing to move through it each time. Like it's a lot of, it's, it sounds like to me, like there are a lot of little decisions, little decisions that go through that. That sounds pretty accurate. I think that's Well, you talk about like, uh, like jumping ahead, like after you finally do on deployment, you talk about breaking down the doors. Like if you're, if you're going on a raid and everybody's stacked and ready to enter a house, you, you just go like, you're already there. You're not going to stop. So, so you're not going to hesitate. You're just going to kick down the door. Right. Sorry. One more time. Endlessly fascinating to me. Oh Yeah. No, it just, it seems to me the same uh, as uh, when you talk about like, you know, sitting up in front of a door, getting ready to kick it down when you're going to raid a house. It's like you, you've already made that decision and any pain or any other input that comes is really just a uh, stimulus that you file away and you continue to work through rather yeah. than trying to like find another place to go and like distract yourself from it. Yeah, no, that's, that sounds pretty accurate. And that, that first deployment when we were in Samara, I mean, we did, 
so many raids. I mean, like, I mean, I don't even, it, it was well over a hundred, you know, it was like almost every night we were going out and, you know, we hit a couple of targets almost every night. So it was, it was a very busy time. And, uh, one of the hardest I've ever worked in my life and uh, also very rewarding as far as some of the stuff we were able to accomplish in the city. So, and we were, you know, the kind of the big, big, I want to say big highlight, big historical event I was there for, right? So the February 22nd destruction of the Golden Mosque, uh, Shia Mosque in Samara. So yeah, that's insane. Which is, I mean, it was on the cover of uh, Newsweek. I still have that issue downstairs in my basement. Uh, if you next time you come over, I can show it to you. But yeah, the the picture of the mosque destroyed is right on the cover, and um, you know, yeah. So we were, I mean, we were less than a kilometer away. Our base was a kilometer away. We were, it woke it woke us up from sleep. I was sleeping at the time. We actually had a platoon out at the time also that actually responded to the incident, and then they were quickly told to leave because they didn't want them thinking Americans had blown up the mosque. So. Oh right, yeah. So. I skipped us ahead. I'm sorry, I skipped us ahead really far in that. But uh, I mean, you want to take us briefly through the end of Ranger School into into your deployment? Is there anything else you want to talk about there? No, I think uh, I I don't have anything specific to say. I think I covered it. I thought I covered it pretty well. So yeah, man, that's this is my favorite part of the book, honestly. Like of everything, like there's so many stories, so much stuff that that seems like it's not real life. It's like, wow. Okay, cool. Like I, I would watch that movie. Yeah. I would so, read that whole book. So we you know when I initially wrote the first draft, I had skimmed over a lot of the military stuff. And then when I'd given it to a couple people to read, they were like, Oh, I want more. I want more of this military stuff. And I was like, Oh, okay. So then I, I started, I just started adding more and more stories. So this, this chapter, you know, like probably triple or quadrupled in size because it was just like, Oh, well, I got another good story about that. Oh, you want stories of guys hallucinating? I got that. You know, you want, um, you know, guys running around naked? I got that. You got, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you, wanna, you want stories of, you know, mass graves we found or um, the king of Iraq's car, you know, 1930s Rolls Royce <laughs> Phantom, um, you know. And then, I, you know, I, I, I wash over, I gloss over a bunch of the stories in there too about, um, like, you know, I think we had a, we had a, when it was in Samara, we had a 107 millimeter rocket land in the motor pool. Um, I wasn't in the motor pool. I was in, inside the building. What? But there are guys like the guy, like the trucks are in a semicircle and the, the, the 107 yeah. lands in the middle of them, like a lawn dart and doesn't explode. And, <laughs> and they come running into the talk <laughs> screaming. They're like, <laughs> and I was like, wait, 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 what's going on? What's going on? And they're like, there's a yeah, there's a there's a 107 rocket sitting in like a lawn dart, and you know, and when it lands, the motor's still humming, right? So it's like, so, you know, so yeah. um, so and they're like, they're like, sir, you got to go outside, and um, essentially, what you can do with rockets is you can shoot a back azimuth on it, and you can tell where they, the generic line they came from, and oh, if you get enough of those, da- if you get enough of those data points, essentially, you can, they can do a, an intersection, and then it tells you ex- like the grid where the the rocket's coming from if they're firing from the same location. No way. So they, that's what they, they, they want. Yeah, they wanted me to go out there and take a, like, shoot a back azimuth, which is actually very easy to do. You just, it's just a compass, right? Um, so, like, you, sir, you got to go out there right now. And I'm like, I'm not going out there when the rocket's still no. coming. I'm like, <laughs> why don't we give it 10 minutes and then I'll go out there? Um, so that's what we did. We shot a back azimuth. But yeah, that was, 
you know, that, that didn't happen to me directly. So I'm pretty sure I left that one out of the book. Um, <laughs> and I try if, you know, if typically if it didn't happen to me or like my platoon directly, I, I left a lot of those stories out of the book just cause I don't know. That seems very fake of, uh, being like, here's a story of some, some guy I know. And it's like, eh, yeah, but it didn't really happen to me. So I left right. a lot of those out. You got some good ones in there. Uh, you, I remember you telling me the, uh, the, the, uh, the poop water story. Ah, uh, yeah, that's a good one. Uh, while we were running one time. That was, uh, oh boy, that one. You know, people ask about like post-traumatic stress disorder sometimes, right? Like there are very few things that give me nightmares. Uh, drowning and like seeing my guys almost drown, that's one, that's one of them. I still get, uh, I'll have a bad dream about that occasionally. Um, yeah. the, the other one I, I actually, I used, I, I used to get it all the time on deployments was I'd be on a mission and I'd go to pull my trigger and the trigger squeeze was too heavy. Right. So like, you know, I'm pulling with like all my strength and the, the gun won't fire. Right. But there's, yeah. there's not a jam. There's not a, there's not a malfunction. Right. It's just like, I'm like physically too weak to pull the trigger. You know, it was, Oh uh, man. So I, I feel used to, like everybody has that dream in some form too. Like you're trying to fight back, but you, you just, you're, you're not strong enough. Yeah. So I, that, that I used to have that reoccurring uh, dream on deployments. That one man. sucks. <laughs> but <laughs> All my deployments, I had a sounds weird again, but I had a really good time. Um, yeah, there's some bad memories and some good memories, but it's also weird. It's it's just simpler, right? Like you're not you don't worry about a lot of the day to day stuff, and you just focus on what you're doing, and a lot of every, everything else becomes background noise, right? Like, yeah, you know, house and car payments, all, all that stuff, right? Like, um, you know the all the all the dealing with trap, you know all that stuff. It's just back. It, 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 you don't have to deal with any of it. It's just uh, what your mission is for that day, and you come back home and watch a bunch of bootleg movies. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I can tell what I can tell. Usually, we tell when movies came out if they came out on deployment because I've seen the bootleg version. Uh, that's how I first saw the movie. So I have like very <laughs> clear memories of you know when certain movies came out. It seems really like a. Like it's funny when you talk about like the, the good times that you had on deployment, it seems like that's the stuff that sticks out the most. And I, and I can, that really resonates with me because uh, doing things like, like, you know, uh, OCR races or like, like when I'm on, you know, doing this, the stuff that I do when I'm like overseas and I'm like shooting a documentary or something like that. Those are the times when I feel most alive, but they're also the times when I have the least noise, right? Like all the stuff that, that especially like as Americans in the first world are meant to like keep us happy are actually getting in the way of that, right? Like the TV and the phone and like all the other little commitments, like going out for a drink or whatever. It's, it's almost like sometimes those things get in the way of the stuff that's, that's real and that's immediate. Like, you know, like your, your the camaraderie with your unit or just like that feeling of like knowing that you're alive when you finally cross the finish line, even though that stuff is hard and simple, that, that feels more real does that have anything to do with why you keep doing ultra ocr we probably talk about this a ton yeah i mean now that i think you hit it right on the head there um i also find that like the the you know life's about variation if there's no if there's no low points you can't have a high point right so you need to have that like yeah you need to have the up and down so i find that like when i do things that are really hard it makes the good times that much better right like um you know, just completely sucking during a, a military training or an ultra OCR or something, and then coming home and, you know, spending the afternoon with my family, right? Like, it makes that afternoon so much better. 
because you can like you can appreciate it because there was a moment recently where you didn't have access to that and experience those things so yeah i 100 percent agree with the statement you made before that yeah you can't rush it you can't rush that uh that high at the finish line you have to go through all the suffering to get there and you had to do the same thing under deployments too yeah yeah man the the warrior philosopher evan preparis deep so deep <laughs> i would like to hear a little bit about your progression in your uh your marathons because you you were doing something where you were you were every time you you changed uh, i guess bases or cities you were running marathons were you getting better uh not really it was mostly because the conditions would always change wildly so i think i i think i pr'd I, I would typically try to run the same pace I did my last marathon. So usually it would come out to around the same pace or maybe slightly faster. Um, but I really didn't start getting better until I started. I know this real, real dumb, obvious statement here until I started following an actual training plan and actually putting in consistent <laughs> work. I know that's like the dumbest thing ever, but um, yeah, like not until I ran, I ran a marathon and someone was like, Oh, you can, you know, you're like 25 minutes from qualifying for Boston. And I was like, Oh, maybe I should actually like follow through a plan (laughs) step by step. And then I, then I started like actually training like you're supposed to. And again, big surprise, the improvements were huge. Right. Cause I had, at that point I'd accumulated enough mileage and the, uh, the actual training plan actually like fine tuned and uh, kind of reinforced a lot of those things. There wasn't much progression. Who would have and, yeah. And I tried to, um, you know, when I'd read some other endurance athletes books, sometimes they would talk about stuff and they didn't, they didn't include like what their time was or like how they finished. And I used to always, that used to always bother me. So I feel like I put a lot more numbers in there. So if someone else is reading it, they can compare themselves and be like, oh, well, I'm faster than Evan at this point, or he's faster than me at this point, you know, like, so you could see, you could see that, you know, it's not necessarily out of your reach versus, um, or, you know, maybe you're way better than me. They, you know, um, when I read some other, some of the other books, again, I, they don't, there's like, I finished the marathon. It's like, well, what was your time? You didn't tell me your time. Um, right. So and sometimes I, we leave that stuff out for a reason. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, when I'm kind of reading through, sometimes it feels like I'm throwing out too many numbers, but uh, I don't know. I think it's, I'd rather give out too much of the numbers than not enough in my opinion. Agreed. Those first couple deployments really shaped me as both an athlete and then like also as like a military person. I, I, you know, I enjoyed being on the ground and doing the actual work and I don't like sitting behind the desk. And, you know, I spent most of my military career kind of chasing deployments and chasing uh, more operational time um, versus yeah. trying to chase the next rank. So, and I don't regret that. I yeah, did. So God, I, I hate editing. I would much rather be out shooting video <laughs> any day. Yeah. I hate it. Yeah. God, it just, it just ruins me. That's so funny. You, you say that too. You talk a little bit about, uh, uh, just, just like the, the mindset of some of the other guys, like y- you have so many stories about just, just amazing heroes that you, you spent time with. Do you have it? Do you have any other like supplemental stories about some of the people that you were, to, that you were, uh, stationed with? Like any of your buddies? Uh, we'll save some of those for the next uh, podcast. A lot of the special operations guys have some pretty, do some pretty insane stuff. Um, trying to think of some of the conventional. I totally put you on the spot on that one. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, no, no names specifically come to mind. Um, you know, besides, the, you know, I think 
with most military guys, it's the guys who don't come home. That's kind of like the, um, those are kind of the names and stories that kind of stick, stick a little longer. Yeah. Uh, Cause they, you know, regardless of how much you do on a deployment, uh, it never feels like you did enough because there's someone else who didn't come home and they did more right. than you because they, they didn't have the opportunity to come back. Yeah. yeah. That's heavy stuff, man. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I'll say this, maybe we'll edit this part out. I don't know. So the, um, you know, and I, that also, I have a really, and some of the guys I work with are, are kind of on the same page. A lot of the guys I work with are on the same page. We have really a very harsh opinion on suicide. Um, because if I see a military person kill themselves, the, uh, it, to me, it's like pissing on the grave of people who died in combat, right? Cause the guy in combat wanted to come home and the guy who came home threw that opportunity away. Right. right? So, so I, I have a very hard time being empathetic towards people that do that. And, and it's not cause I haven't been around it, right? I had a guy in my military fraternity kill himself, uh, on my first deployment. And a guy in my special operations company killed himself on eh, it like 2011, 12 timeframe. Um, so it's, it's not like I haven't been around it. And I had one, uh, I actually had a soldier on suicide watch for a while, but the, I just have, I have a very hard time dealing with that, uh, that situation as far as being empathetic towards it. And I understand there's, you know, there's, there's wounds you can't see and there's, you know, people come home with all sorts of stuff and, but I just, it feels like, it feels very disrespectful to me. So, um, yeah. So you, you know, the, they always see, you always see people doing the 22 push ups for veterans a day. And I, I just can't get on board with it. So, yeah. Well, I think a, a great deal of that is, is what keeps you alive in the first place is like that, that sort of, it's not just like a mental toughness. It's a, it's a desire to, uh, to do everyone around you, you know, to, to pull your weight to be a part of the team. And that's, I mean, that's valuable, not just in the military, but I mean, like that's, that's admirable. So don't get me crying, dude. <laughs> Stop it. Yeah. You know, I'd say the other big story from that is right. My college roommate uh, died in April of 2007 uh, from an IED blast while I was back in the States. So he's deployed a different unit. I'm back in the States. Uh, he gets killed. Oh man. His wife uh, was also, it's a co-ed military fraternity that we were talking about early, earlier. Um, his wife, both of them were in it. So his wife uh, was like a widow at, you know, 22 years old. And uh, he died at, you know, 26, I think he was or something at the time, 25. Yeah. Um, so that kind of, it really reset a lot of things, you know, when uh, both the military deployment and st stuff like that, where like when someone, when you have a problem in your day-to-day -day life, you know, it's, it's sometimes I'm just like, it's just not that big of a deal. Um, and I feel like because of those experiences, you know, it's like, well, oh no, you got into, you got into a fender bender and your car, your car is now scratched. Like who cares? You, you know, you, yeah. so you have to go into a little credit card debt to pull, to fix it or whatever, you know, it's just, at the end of the day, it's, it's not a big a deal. It's not that big of a deal. So um, I think that reset a lot of my baseline. And also, you know, it's, it was kind of a weird feeling because um, when you lose someone from your unit on deployment, I feel very responsible for it. Even if I'm not like directly there or, 
was directly part of it. Um, but I was a lot closer to my, uh, my roommate, John uh, Grasbaugh, but I wasn't in his unit. So there's physically nothing I could have done about it. So it was a very right. weird feeling. Cause I, you know, I lost someone who was a lot closer to me, but at the same time, I didn't feel any, I didn't feel like there was anything I could have done to uh, change the outcome. So, yeah. Yeah. You can't fix that with willpower. I can't no. Um, versus you, know, we, we had a, uh, my first deployment, we had a, sol- a, a soldier in my company die. And, you know, even though I'm like, I'm not, res- I'm not directly responsible. You know, there's a portion of, of that responsibility that, that is, is partially my fault. You know, I'm not saying it's like 90% my fault. I'm saying it's like, you know, everyone in the unit shares a little bit of that responsibility. Um, and yeah. that, that blame, and I'm not, again, not using blame is like a, a harsh word, but it's just, if we don't know what we did wrong, we can't fix it when the similar situation happens in the future. So, right. Every time we go on the, one of these military patrols, we come back and we do like a quick, it's called after action review where you talk about what you did good and what you did bad. And, um, you know, you do point fingers, but it, it's in a help. It's, you try to do it in a helpful way and people need to have thick skin because, um, if you don't point out the mistakes people made and people don't realize they're making mistakes, then they can't fix them. So you, you can't prevent bad things from happening in the future. Yeah. Well, if you don't take responsibility for the people around you, no one else is going to. So yeah. like, how are you, how are you supposed to, you know, do any good if everyone's out for themselves? Yeah. Damn dude. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all pensive now. Yeah. You know, and I, Again, people, I feel like people get a little bit weird when talking about some of this stuff, but it's just, I don't know. It's part of the job, and uh, so some of the stuff is, is a fairly far removed in time from when it actually happened, right? So that was 13 years ago. Um, so, you know, parts of it are a little less emotional, you know, and uh, sometimes it's, it, it, it's, it's weird. Sometimes it, it changes, right? Like, I remember going to his grave when it first happened, and it was emotional, and then for a while it was less emotional, and now I think it's more emotional, right? Because now I have, I have two kids, right? He's never, he's never met my two kids. He met my wife once before I was married, right? Like, um, you know, I've got another almost 15 years that I've lived longer than him, right? That, uh, you know, it sometimes doesn't seem fair uh, that I get to do yeah. stuff and he doesn't. Um, and then kind of that goes for any of the soldiers, right? They didn't come back, so... Um, you know, I think I, I try to take some of that and I try to remember it and do, uh, you know, do stuff like OCR America where I, you know, I try to raise money for them and then try to, you know, live out your life to the best you can. And, you know, you know hopefully at the end of the yeah. day, I, I make up for it. You know, I try to, li- I try to live for both of us that. is kind of what I, my philosophy. Yeah, that's it. So, Like you owe it to them to, to, not only give your best in everything you do uh, from here on out, but to enjoy it too. Yeah. Which is also savor it again is also why I have a very uh, unempathetic view towards suicide, especially in the military. So yeah, it's probably not PC, but it's the way it's the way it is. And we, you know, with a lot of these military guys, we get into, get into some really dark humor, right? Like stuff that like, I don't even feel comfortable sharing in any sort of public forum uh but people are is you know if the, if the possibility of death is a little bit closer it, you know you learn to live with it um and you become a lot more you, you joke about it a lot more so 
Yeah. But I mean, like you, you acclimate to it, really. I yeah, mean, you do. It, exactly. It's not like you're getting weird. You're just like, you know, you're, you're adjusting. It's good. Yeah. It becomes, it becomes, it becomes a little more normal. So, all right. Deep stuff. Whew. It's heavy in here, man. Yeah. What else? Like we got a weighted any- blanket. Got anything else before we jump it, before we, uh, before we call it an episode? Dude, you, you took me on, on a roller coaster ride here today. And I, <laughs> we started off with a Kentucky waterfall with you like throttling Hulk Hogan. Then, I mean, then we, <laughs> and then we, then we ended up here. Man, I, I've been up and down. I've had a great time. Good. Well, I hope other people enjoyed it. And, you know, we're going to break it up, up to probably about four, four different episodes, you know, take a couple chapters at a time. And talk about them a little more in depth and cover some of the stuff I may have glossed over or some of the stuff that, you know, I don't even realize I glossed over because, again, I, it's my life. So if there's, a, if there's a gap missing, my brain just fills it in. I don't realize I've, I've glossed over something. We're going to do more race tips later. Yeah, we'll get into more, we'll get into more OCR stuff. Uh, but, you know, next episode, we're going to start talking about uh, special forces and special operations stuff. And then we'll start getting into some of the bodybuilding. And then I think we start touching on uh into when i start trying to start putting my foot into the ocr world after that so and i will continue to put my foot into my mouth so i hope you i hope you guys enjoyed it <laughs> again bobby ross is from stoke shed bobby where can people find you and some of your awesome film stuff and share some of the projects you've done recently and have coming up Man, lots of big changes coming this next year. But right now, you can still find me at stokeshed.com, youtube.com slash stokeshed, and facebook.com slash stokeshedproductions. And I know you released a Halloween movie a while back. Yeah, we've got a lot of big stuff coming. Uh, that, that movie was uh, just something that we shot actually with all of the equipment that we were using to, to work on a, a series that we're, that we're doing. Ooh. Uh, so yeah, we're trying to get it bought up, but if it doesn't, then it doesn't matter. We'll still show it to you one way or another. <laughs> you, you always have good stuff and I always love your work. So I'm excited to see what you have coming up and uh, anyone who's starting to put on a race or something, you should hire Bobby in Stoke Shed. I might be there anyway, so you might as well pay me to be there. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. We will, uh, we'll catch up sometime later. Pick up Ultra OCR Man on Audible, Digital, or Hard Copy and actually read the story so you can follow a little bit closer along and you know if you have any other questions you can throw them our way and we can try to answer them in a future episode all right bobby thanks for coming on absolutely man i'll see you later bro